0: Well, hello, it's yes, me, Phil Ryan again at the Story Hive, the home of Amazing audio Stories with yet another podcast episode. Well, I'm not going to go wittering on about the short length and how many stories there are because by now I'm hoping you people have probably got a little bit used to it. And I wanted to say thank you for listening. We really do appreciate it. We put quite a lot of effort into making these things and it's so great if you just drop us a line, give us a message, give us a thumbs up and tell us how you think we're doing. Anyway, let's get on with the first story, and it's from, as ever, the three-story collection here today, and this one's called Our Gym. So, happy listening. He sighed. <sighs> no signal. The phone no use. He felt angry with himself. He was somewhere in the city. Samantha had called him, his lawyer. The divorce still not running smoothly. Custody still a big issue. <sighs> Been over a year now. And he looked around him. He'd been so busy concentrating on the phone, he just kept his head down and somehow he got turned around. Now the phone sat nav wasn't responding. The meeting had been a washout. Those people were just a bunch of idiots. My luck, he thought. Blast, my luck. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. Just a year ago, everything had been great. All right, granted he wasn't broke now, but... He still had the house in Kent, and the apartment in Portugal, and the new Porsche. He knew he wasn't struggling, but still, I mean, everything had just gone to pot. He'd been in love with Kelly. He adored his little girl, Melanie. (sighs) Melanie. She was ten years old and the light in his heart. But then everything had just turned to crap. First the company had downsized. He'd been let go. Decent payoff, mind. But then Kelly, dropping the bombshell. She was leaving him. Leaving him after 15 years. But worst of all, taking little Melanie, his little fairy. She kept on saying Steve's work always took first place. And worst of all, he knew she'd been right. He was an idiot. He knew that now. But that didn't help any. He stood there, his mind slightly reeling. The new consulting business, that was proving difficult to get off the ground. Plus... He hated going home to that big empty house. He was too tired to cook. There was a line of takeaway boxes now in the fridge. Frankly, life sucked. He had taken his eye off the ball, and he knew it. And now, just to cap it all, he was completely and utterly lost. The streets all unfamiliar, deserted too. It was two o'clock in the afternoon. Where the hell was everybody? This was ridiculous. He felt something in his pocket, a little velvet bag, and he smiled, smiling. He hadn't done that in a while. Ah, it was from Melanie, her charm bracelet. She got it last year from his mother, her lucky leprechaun, she said, from Ireland. And she'd given it to him, to Daddy, for luck, she'd said. And then she said he was the best Daddy ever. And he could still feel her little arms around his neck, holding so tight. And that had just been six months ago. Six months. Him denied access still. The lawyers arguing back and forth. Now if they spoke on the phone, there was Kelly listening in. It was just terrible. And he felt his chest tightening at the memory. He looked around and then noticed a small side street, cobbled and thin and winding. He had no idea which direction he was supposed to go. When up ahead... A door opened and two people stepped out and they turned and they walked away up the slight incline. He looked a bit closer. Ah, oh, great. It was a small pub, barely visible from where he was standing. Excellent. He could go in there and ask directions, maybe grab a pint or maybe get some food. Why not? He didn't have anywhere else to go. Or anyone to go home to. He thought about the house in a lot of good that did him now. It was just a house, a big empty place. It wasn't really a home. He was a shy man. He always had been. He'd never made friends easily. But he was a hard worker, though. Even Kelly admitted that. But now he thought a lot about the fact he'd replaced everything with work, putting his head down, bringing in the bucks. He'd certainly done that all right. But one problem being that his friends, if he was honest, were really all Kelly's friends. And now, here he was, alone, lost in a side street, dumped, screwed. He felt like a failure. He was a failure. He cocked everything up. God, I'm just useless. Behind him, he heard footsteps, and a large man drew level and looked at him, the man's large red face now covered in a look of astonishment. Jazz a snore. If it isn't Jim O'Connor... And he lunged forward and wrapped him in a bear hug. And Steve froze. But what What the hell? But before he could speak, the big man stepped back. Let me look at you, laddie. His face a huge grin. Well, if that isn't a feckin' sight for sore eyes! His eyes were wide and still amazed. And he turned, his face now one huge look of happiness. Holy mother of God, man! It's just the best thing, sure if it isn't. no. Oh, come on, get in there, will you? Come on. And he pushed the pub door open and tugged Steve inside. It looked like every small off-street traditional London pub. Slightly old-fashioned, wood-panelled, brasses and tankards hanging from hooks, old prints in faded frames. Steve had to peer now, for it was slightly gloomy even though the lights were on, and he still felt off-balance. The man had clearly mistaken him for this gym guy, and he was about to apologise when the man yelled, ''Look, everyone!'' Look at all the hell and holy angels I found out there, lurking like a gypsy. Come on now, will you? And two men at the bar spun around, one man standing up, his face now covered in a look of disbelief. Jim O'Connor, he said, and he stepped forward, his voice incredulous in tone, and he quickly hugged Steve, pressing his face tightly into his shoulder, clapping him on the back. Jim boy, Jim boy, holy Christ on a bike, it's been an age, so it has. And the other man, standing closer now, reached forward, and he smiled and squeezed Steve's arm. Once the other man released him, his companion stepped forward, him now wrapping Steve in another tight hug, banging his shoulder, and then he stood back and stared into his face, smiling brightly. The Jim or Connor, as I live and breathe, honest, you couldn't make it up here. Ha <laughs> ha! His companion nodding vigorously now. Steve was completely in shock. What what the hell? Now four people close by had risen at a nearby table, and they all stepped forward and began shaking his hands, looking around them, smiling and waving to others. And a female voice lifted in a loud yell. Steve was completely confused and spun round as now a middle-aged woman with elaborate makeup rushed out from behind the bar. "Jimmy, by Jimmy, bye. Oh, God, love your son! It's so good to see him, I love so good," and the rest of her words were cut off as she too wrapped her arms around him, pressed her cheek tightly against him, and kissed him with a loud smack and a cheer rose behind him. Steve didn't know what to do, as now someone put a glass into his hand. Chattering rose, and energy swept through the place, and now more people began to gather around him, all staring at him in wonder. One man reached out and stroked his shoulder, his eyes bright and gleaming with pleasure, and then he heard another boy say, Will you look at that? It's Jim O'Connor. Isn't that the greatest thing you've ever seen, right, Saul? And soon Steve found himself surrounded. People now grabbing his hand, shaking it. More hugs, more back claps. And the big man from now earlier had draped his arm around Steve's shoulder. He quickly gathered the big man's name was Finn. And he felt so embarrassed. This was crazy. He he had to tell them. He had to let them know. Everyone seemed to think he was this Jim guy. I mean, what was he going to say? And then Finn looked at him, right in the eyes. So, Jim lad, how's the things with Kelly? Yeah, bad, I heard. Bad, yes. You can tell us, Jim, because you know you're among friends now. You know that, don't you? His kind face, full of concern. Steve was confused. How did the guy know about Kelly? Finn continued. And little Melanie, yeah, she's okay right off, yeah? Now, this seemed to loosen something. And suddenly, he didn't know quite what to say. And then he started to speak. But he couldn't help himself. And everything tumbled out as a silence suddenly fell. Others began crowding around him, gathering. And now he talked about the divorce. Kelly, Melanie, what she'd said, the custody thing, the money. How low he'd felt, how useless. With Finn comforting him, shaking his head sorrowfully, looking right into his face. Steve felt relieved. A big arm firm and tight around his shoulder, another drink being put into his hand, and then the lady from behind the bar sat down and now next to him stroked his hand. This was just this, this was impossible. I mean th- th- who was Jim O'Connor? I mean and then he looked for a raid in front of him was now a group of people all intently listening, others just standing back and smiling. He couldn't explain it, but suddenly he felt like a load had been lifted. And he felt a lot better. And now an hour passed, and Finn spoke, and the landlady spoke, and all of them offered advice, people around nodding in approval. More drinks came his way, and new people came in saying, bless us, Noel, if it's not to Jim O'Connor himself. And they all came forward and shook his hand, hugging him and generally regarding him with awe. He was utterly baffled. Jim O'Connor. Everyone knew him. He could see that. Finn, the landlady, everyone. They looked right into his face. Whoever Jim O'Connor was, he was very popular. But Steve felt bad. He, I'm not a fraud, he thought. He wasn't even Irish. He was from Kent. But it appeared that this entire pub seemed to think he was this Jim O'Connor guy. They'd all looked at him, smiled, taken him in, listened to him talk. They touched his arm, his shoulder. They'd listened to his story. It was crazy, he knew, but it just made him feel so good, for the first time in so long. Initially, he tried to pay for a drink, and several people, led by Finn, had said, "For the love of all that's holy, man, put your money away, boy. It's no good here. The very idea. The very idea." faces around him, wreathed in grins, people shrugging and look at each other, smiles on all the faces. And Steve sat in his chair. Looking out the window, he noticed it was getting darker now. Steve tried to glance at his watch, but Finn saw him and he turned and yelled to a man behind him, Lord, it's eating time. No, Declan, come on, Jim, lad, what you going to have? And now Steve found himself sat at a small table laid out with knives and forks and pots and pans, with Finn and three other small people. And the young woman, who called herself Fanula, suddenly reached out and stroked his face and said, It's so lovely to see it, Jim. Honest it is. God, it's a treat. Her voice was so sweet and sincere, Steve nearly choked up. And now various dishes appears. Potatoes, vegetables, hams. It was a bewildering mouth-watering array, and he felt his stomach rumbling. Now Finn talking loudly, laughter ringing around the whole pub, jokes and stories coming from all sides. People now crowded around, drinks in hand. Twice a song started up and finished and then started up again and people yelled and cheered and clapped. And Steve now sat, soaking up the atmosphere, happier than he'd ever been, as many people walked by, tapped him on the shoulder, stroked his face and said things like, you'll be grand, Jim boy, you'll just see. Suddenly a brass bell began to ring and a young man behind the bar shouted Time, ladies and gentlemen, please now Thanks for the visiting, safe travels home now Come on, right so, it's time to get off with you Haven't you got no homes to go to? And people began to laugh and smile good-naturedly as they stood and put their coats on and made movements to leave. Steve sat there. He couldn't believe what had happened. He felt so good. And now, as people went to the door, virtually every single person came up to him, their faces marvelling just at his presence. One elderly gentleman, his eyes shining bright. Well, it's the Jim O'Connor writing off. What a thing, what a thing, yes! And he turned, and still shaking his head, he stroked Steve's face and stepped out into the darkened street. Finn cuddled him a bit closer, as the landlady came over and now she ruffled his hair and now she wagged her finger. No, don't you believe in it so long, no, Jim O'Connor, you rascally thing. Ah, come here to me. And leaning forwards, she gave him another massive cuddle and a huge kiss on the cheek as more people clapped and cheered and left the building. Soon there were few people left and Finn stood up slowly "'Well, we'd better be off, no Jim boy. "'Night's a-stretchin' out, and you've a fair way to go, right so, to your home, yes?' And Steve, now feeling as happy as he'd ever felt, followed him into the street, the big man slowly wrapping his arms around him. He leant forward and softly whispered into his ear, "'It'll be all good, Jim boy, you and Kelly and Melanie. "'Don't you worry. You'll just see it'll be grand.' Steve felt his throat tighten, the man's voice so kind and so sincere. And he watched now as he slightly staggered backwards and up away, walking along the small dimly lit street. Finn's voice now softly rising in a song about a girl called Kathleen until he finally disappeared around the corner. He was uncertain at what to do now and he stood He looked down at his phone, still no signal. But he didn't care. The world was better now. Yes, Finn was right, it would all work out, despite everything. And he felt a warmth flood from his head to his toes. And now, he didn't look where he was going, he just walked. The pub, somewhere far behind him now. And he'd never go back, even if he wanted to. For he knew he'd never find the place again. But it didn't matter, because he knew from then on, whatever happened, for some people, he'd always be the Jim O'Connor. God bless him. And that would be enough. Well, I hope you enjoyed that, and I really wish I could find that pub. But what a bunch. And good old Jim, eh? Good old Jim. Anyway, here's the second story. And today, it's a mystery it's a mystery at work from the Just the Job collection and it's called The Ladder. And I've got a bit of a question for you. Do you believe in fairies? Happy listening. It looked impossibly lightweight, the ladder. It ran in zigzags up the steep embankment. he thought, this was going to be hard work. A fault, they'd said. Junction box 19XXB. Access from the track only. He looked at Ravi. Uh, well, you get the light rig checked, all right? I'll do the box. Ravi grinned and held up his thumb. Bob sighed. He couldn't ask him to climb up there. It was bloody steep. The poor lad only came out of hospital last month. His asthma really bad. And Bob glanced upwards. The railway cut was wide, the embankment steep, both the railway lines fitting neatly between it. A huge stone bridge spanning it all, ladders running up the sides. A guide rail evident. It went up in sections of about 12 yards, and the ladder steps were quite wide, each jinking to the left or right around big boulders. Well, they weren't going to shift. They looked to be granite, huge, implacable. The slope was very steep, and he pulled his hard hat on, adjusting his gear rucksack. Right, he thought, time to climb. He grimaced. Back at the rail depot, he'd seen the job on the board. Early shift, 5am. And old Sid had laughed. Huh, it's up the fairy hill for you, boy. Up the fairy hill. And two of the other crew had laughed. Big Parvel clapping him on the back. Old Sid was a fixture. He'd been at the depot forever. No one knew quite how long. Fairy hill, he'd said. Bob had raised an eyebrow. Old Sid was full of stories. He knew he was about to hear another one. He was a sweet old boy, really. Always waiting up with a brew, sweets, biscuits when the lads got back, rain or shine, early or late. A welcome thing in the depot of a winter. <laughs> old Sid sucked his teeth loudly. Oh, yeah, man, she's a beaut. One of the first deep cuts for that Rimpton Spur line. He closed his eyes all way back. Eighteen something, the Victorians, very old. He sipped his tea reflectively. Oh, yeah, they cut that great hill right in two. "'Pushed the line through. "'Nothing stood in their way. "'Granite cliffs, you name it, it fought them. "'Real railwaymen. "'Not like now, but they won, boy. "'They always won.' "'Bob nodded, and he had to say it. "'Okay, Sid, but why the Fairy Hill? "'Old Sid often laid his stories out like that, "'pulling you in.' "'The old man's eyes were watery, "'and he wheezed and paused. "'Well, according to locals, it was magic.' "'The fairy eel? he chuckled. "'I read a thing in a library years ago about it.' "'And he dipped a digestive biscuit into his mug. "'Way back in the old days. "'Local folk used to gather up there,' he winked. "'Right on the top, danced about in a nutty.' <laughs> "'He gave a laid cackle. "'Begging the fairies for favours and stuff, you know, help. "'Making babies, making you well, staying young, "'keeping a wife happy.' "'Ravi laughed loudly. "'Nothing makes my wife happy.' "'And they all chuckled.' So did Steve, the other ganger, and old Sid carried on. Now, don't you forget to say hello and thank the fairies once you get up there, will you now? You never know what you're going to get. And he broke down in a fit of wheezy laughter. Bob stood up. <laughs> Another old Sid bit of nonsense. He really did like to joke around. And then Big Pavel waved a finger at him. Dancing, eh? You keep your pants on, I'll be eye on you, fairy Bob. And the room filled with laughter. Bob grinned. Typical of the lads, good silly banter, kind, not mean. (laughs) Good start to the working day. The sun had only just risen and the air was still cool and Bob stood on the first platform. He'd climbed the first stretch about 40 feet in total and the hill steeply ran away upwards. Below now, he could see Big Parvel with his safety crew hives, and he could see Steve as well. They were standing along the track edge on lookout duty and he heard his radio crackle, and he saw Ravi sitting by a light cluster, high on the newly cut bankside, bits of gear all around him. Poor sod. He really hadn't fully recovered yet. His chest was still weak, and he was such a good bloke. Solid, dependable. Oh well, up we go, he thought. He wasn't too bad, the steepness. And now he knew why the ladders changed direction every 12 yards. It meant the climb was broken up and plus it allowed them to get around the huge protruding boulders. And on close inspection, he could see a thick steel mesh had been pinned over some of them, clearly holding them from any slippage. Huge steel pins driven deep into the earth around them. Wow, he thought, that must have been a job. And he rested his hand on a boulder. It felt solid, ancient, and he marvelled looking around. This was really old, a bit of history really. And he looked across the cut; the other side a mirror of his hill. Must have been impressive in its day in one piece. More like a mountain than a hill. And the view at the top was probably amazing. Yeah, he was looking forward to that. But those old Victorian engineers, though. He recalled pictures old Sid had brought in. Vast earthworks all along the lines. Sepia prints, steam trains, armies of men. Caps and waistcoats, moustaches shirt sleeves rolled up like ants clustering across the side of embankments and hillsides with picks and shovels real hard graft now it was all diggers and heavy machinery and he stepped up onto the next small platform above him bright sun had began streaming through the wildflower bushes and a scent of some kind filled the air honeysuckle he guessed he could see huge swathes of the foliage and steadily he began to climb again, resting at each platform. Beside him, the great block of the stone bridge, almost black like the granite boulders, and up and up he climbed. It was made easier by the handrails, firm, unmoving, and Bob dragged himself along. How high was this bloody thing, he thought. (sighs) He looked down. The boys were like dolls now. Small figures. Easy to see because they're bright orange vests. He did like his job. Working outside with his hands. He was good at it. Following his old man onto the railways. (laughs) He thought about him. He missed the old bugger. Gone these past five years. Heart attack. Sudden. Quick. Blessing in disguise, really. He'd been a smoker all his life. and His health had never been that great. Ah, well... His phone suddenly pinged, a text, Stella, on my way, she said, appointment at 10, and he felt his chest tighten. His wife is Stella, poor cow, a martyr to sciatica, it got very bad lately, worse than ever. She was only 32, his childhood sweetheart, in constant pain. She'd had scans and tests, and she was up the hospital today, talking to the consultant. He'd even mentioned a wheelchair at one point. Well, they'd been talking about surgery, but the waiting list was ridiculous. And he wished they had the money to go private, but they didn't. And he'd even talked about selling the car. She was having none of it. She was a fierce woman, strong like him. She said they'd manage. And he loved her to her toes and back. It was nearly ten now, he thought, and the radio beeped. General call, Big Pavel, and very far away he heard a horn sounding. Train alert. He looked down. He was fascinated. He was really high up. The lad looked tiny, and he smiled, and a tiny train appeared, swiftly moving past. He looked up. Phew, good job he kept in shape. Why'd they put the junction box way up here? Bloody silly place. And he glanced at his diagram. Ah, good. It should be on the next platform. And he grunted and he swung himself forwards, quick up, quicker get back down. That was one of old Sid's phrases, daft old bugger, full of those stories he was. The wind was blowing now, a gentle breeze. Bingo, there it was, junction box 19 X B. And he smiled. He could see the problem straight away, straw poking out the front grill. He'd seen it before, a bird's nest and carefully slid his rucksack off and he inserted his master key in the square pin lock, And very carefully, he swung the door open and it squeaked, rust clearly setting in. He'd sort that out too, he thought. The nest was huge, a mass of straw and twigs filling half the box, and it was mouldy and wet, long since abandoned, and part of it had clearly finally shorted out two fuses. Easy peasy. Excellent. He pulled on his thick insulated gloves and he flicked the kill plough switch off. The box was safe, not live. And he dragged the nest out, bits here and bits there, carefully removing the bits and pieces until the box was empty. Still dusty though, cobwebs full. He got his wire brush out, give it a good old clean, and he reached into his rucksack and identified the two fused components. Standard fit, nice. And using the brush, he rubbed away at the pins, both few sets sliding easily in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was humming to himself and he smiled. Stella's morning song. She played it when he was at home, not on early's. Last time he danced around the kitchen, her giggling, hugging him tight. He attached the meter. Check it all. Full current? He glanced inside the box and he moved the inspection torch around and he flicked the kill switch back on red indicator light lit up. Yeah, good job done. Tea on, as old Sid liked to say, and he stretched his back. <sighs> he loosened his muscles. Sunshine flooding the side of the hill now. The huge stone blocks of the bridge warming in the heat. And Bob stared upwards. The top of the hill. It was, what, 60 feet away, he glanced at his watch. 1015 Why not? He had time. And tugging his rucksack back on, he began the final climb, upwards. It didn't take that long, considering the final part, and plus it was worth it. He was right at the top. He'd stepped off the last ladder platform, and the hill seemed to flatten. A vast meadow stretching away. Huge oak trees, massive, standing in a cluster. A broad woodland, a few hundred yards away. Nice place for a picnic, he thought a shade and he turned his head the stone bridge clearly now hardly used he could make out some kind of track but it was faded It was really beautiful up here tiny flowers he thought pepper in the grass and he looked around there was no road not anywhere and he tried to imagine it before the railways had come that long vanished village he'd read about the little houses the huge hill and turning he looked to the other part of it the scar of the cut now long overgrown, greenery covering both the steeply banked sides, the stone bridge linking them like a huge grey staple almost, holding the two parts of the cut hill together. <laughs> he grinned. The fairy hill. Stella would love it up here. She couldn't have made those stairs, though, he thought. Not the poor love, not now. He pulled out his phone. He'd take a picture to shower. <laughs> Plus old Sid the old man's face came to him and he breathed the fresh air deep in and then a chuckle came from deep within what had old sid said don't forget to thank the fairies and he laughed out loud silly old sod and then he thought of his Stella. thank you fairies thank you for my wife i love her more than life he said quietly now under his breath <laughs> now he felt stupid ridiculous He shook himself like a wet dog and then his radio beeped. It was Ravi. You done? He asked and Bob said he was pausing only to take one last look around before trudging back to the ladders and starting the long climb back down. The day finished on time and everyone piled back into the crew truck and Big Pavel said he'd drop him off at the house. He could leave early Ravi would clock him out later bit of an old trick they all used mainly to annoy the bosses well everyone did it and the van swung into a street and his heart froze outside his house an ambulance and he felt his color drain stella had been getting worse the pain and today that appointment the new scans the results and he virtually jumped from the van for it stopped his breath now tight in his throat he was angry with himself Wasting time on that stupid ill, fairy ill, stupid nonsense, bloody Sid. He should have just come straight down, been here, not messing around, and he ran down the path, scrambling to get his key in the door. His mum stood in the hall, and she looked confused. She looked up. She was crying, and she pointed mutely, and he flung the front room door open. Stella was lying on her back, on the couch her eyes shut, her face pale, colourless, and he flung himself next to her and gently put his face into her neck. And he felt her arm move around him, and he sat back. Oh, love, she said. She was trembling. The the ambulance, he said, worry etched across his face, and she gave a little smile. I fainted, love. He groaned. He steeled himself. What did they say then? He didn't want to hear the answer, not really and he shut his eyes, hanging his head and he felt her hand on his face. Oh my love, she whispered and she lifted his face, her eyes wide and she kissed him gently. Here it was, he thought. Here it was. It's gone, love. He stared at her. Gone? She nodded her eyes wider. Mr Carmichael, there's not a trace of it. He was amazed. The damage, the sight, it's completely gone. There's no pain, there's nothing. All the scans were completely clear. He said he'd never seen anything like it. He sank to his knees. She pulled him closer. And he stared into her eyes, her beautiful eyes. And she smiled. It covered her whole face. And then she took his hand and placed it on her stomach. And he looked at her inquiringly. Plus, she kissed him, squeezing him tightly. Twins! Well, I hope you needed a tissue at the end of that one, because I certainly did when I was writing it. It's a strange thing I said that. But when I write stories, I don't know how they end. Sometimes I have a vague idea, but as I write, suddenly the ending becomes clearer and clearer as I get closer. And again, as I'm always trying to set exercises for everybody who wants to listen to my work, why don't you do it as well? Write in exactly the same way. You know, once this podcast is over, think of something or someone and just make, and here's the exercise, a one-page synopsis. You haven't got to write for hours and hours. Just a one-page synopsis, like bullet points, and create a plan for a story. Because in a way, that's how I generally work. But of course, I don't quite know how they finish. Anyway. Off you go, go on, give it a go. So, it's final story time. And today, it's called From the World of Incan and Dreams, Rose. And you'll never, ever understand what it took me to write that story. Pam liked her job, health visitor. Things were getting very hard though. Staff cuts, smaller budgets. Her department was squeezed each and every way. And she glanced at a clipboard. Rose Johnson. Oh yes, she'd read the notes. Deaf, virtually blind, no children, no living relatives, prime carer, husband. Oh, bless him, she thought. He was 88. Rose was 89. Recently, Rose had been referred after a recent hospital visit, her chest issues, worrying the local surgery. And the door opened. Mr Johnson, she said brightly, I'm Pam Wheeler and she held up her ID badge, and the old man smiled. Oh, come in, love. We've been expecting you. And he turned and shouted over his shoulder, How not we, love? And she followed him along the small hallway and into a cheery living room. She'd seen places like it before. An old person's living room, crammed with knickknacks knacks and cushions and clocks, but neat and tidy, faded, old. An elderly person's home, but frownly, The air smelt slightly musty. It always did, but everything was spotlessly clean. Pam could see an elderly lady sitting in a large chair in one corner. But she didn't seem to move or register Pam's presence. And Mr Johnson went across. He touched the woman's face. Look, Rose, love, he smiled, and he brushed his hand along her cheek. It's that nice lady the doctor said would come. And she smiled briefly at his touch, nodding a little. But she didn't say anything. Pam thought to herself, Rose wasn't well. That colour wasn't good. And her breathing was slow but light. Tea, love? Rose won't. Mm, it's not her time yet. You, you won't have one, will you, love? he said. And Rose didn't answer. And the old man waved his hand to a side table. There was a floral teapot and cups all laid out biscuits on a plate and Pam laughed oh Mr Johnson you're a lifesaver I'm gasping oh milk and one sugar please and Mr Johnson chuckled yes ma'am coming right up Pam smiled he was a real sweetie sprightly too considering his age and efficiently she got her equipment out from her bag with Rose barely registering her again just slightly turning her head at the sound of a cup and behind a chair Pam could see a bed neatly made, and Mr Johnson caught her gaze. Oh, yeah, yeah, miss, I, I thought it best. The poor darling, she can't get up the stairs nowadays. And he lowered his voice and whispered very loudly. She's none too good on her legs now. But still, his face fell momentarily, and then he brightened. One cup of tea. Rose was in that stage that Pam and her colleagues called the waiting room. Death not far away. But you could never tell, though. She was always amazed at the tenacity of these elderly ladies clinging to life by a thread. Especially the women. The women of Rose's generation. The Second World War generation. She could tell by the black and white pictures. And Pam put her things away. The numbers on her instruments were exactly what she'd expected. She'd report back later. And now Rose appeared to have fallen asleep. And tenderly, Mr. Johnson had put a blanket over his wife's legs, and he sat beside her on a small stool, now holding her hand. He winked and lowered his voice, conspiratorily. So, love, how is she? All right? His face looked worried. It was familiar to Pam. She saw that expression time and time again on husbands and wives. She'd seen it on her own dad's face when Mum had had the accident. And happily, she'd recovered fully. A fall, a very typical thing now. She glanced across, and Rose was clearly dozing now. And she smiled. Well, her blood pressure's a bit low. But she couldn't tell him everything. That would just worry him. What was the point of that? But she's responded well to the medication. That was a tiny white lie. Still, it couldn't hurt. Mr Johnson sat up now, seemingly a bit happier. Well, well, that's good then. He stroked his wife's hand. Can't have my rose under the weather, eh? He was wearing a crisp ironed white shirt, brown braces and brown trousers, his brown shoes highly polished. A proper old soldier, she thought. And his sleeves were rolled up and his forearms were tattooed. And he saw her looking. He smiled, holding his arms up. Got these in the army, love. yeah. <laughs> probably before you were born, my girl. And she laughed and waved her hand. He pointed. Got this one in France, that one in Morocco. He indicated his right arm. It was emblazoned with a large red rose on a stem with some tiny green leaves and underneath it had a swirling banner with the words Rose in flowing script, below which sat a red heart and a little angel. (laughs) Got that one in Brighton. Yeah, on our honeymoon. He looked at his wife's face adoringly. She's my girl, you know. Always will be. On the mantelpiece, a clock started to chime and Pam glanced at her watch. Oh, oh dear me, sorry. I'm due at Fernley Court in fifty minutes, Mr Johnson, so I'll have to love you and leave you, eh? He stood up and smiled, his eyes bright. Mischievous almost. Duty calls, eh? I understand duty. And she fought the urge to cuddle him. He was an absolute sweetie, she thought, and then he stood to attention and pretended to salute, and they both laughed. Right, I'll see you not this Wednesday, but the Wednesday after then, yeah? He winked. I'll get the kettle on, love. You mark my words. That night at home, Pam thought about him briefly when she was in the kitchen. He'd been quite reticent, typical of that generation, but an old charmer all the same she'd commented on some of the pictures on the mantelpiece army he'd said there he was a young man in uniform black and white deserts beaches tanks villages grinning a youthful face squinting in the sunlight long since faded others around him smiling hopeful he'd seen things he said terrible things he shrugged we were just doing our duty we were kids really I was a sergeant, mechanical engineers. She could see the pride in his eyes as he spoke, the way his chest rose. Oh, he never talked about the war, he said. He glanced towards his wife. No, I never told Rose nothing. That's not for women, folk. And Pam had long ago realised sometimes just listening was important. Many of the older people she visited simply really wanted to chat, be heard, be acknowledged. But she never patronised them. She genuinely listened. She believed that was part of her job. And she commented if prompted. Still, she thought. Rose, what a lucky woman. Having a husband like that. So caring, so kind. <sighs> a yawn stole across her face. And she looked across the bed at her gym. Beside her, snoring gently. Daft old sod, she thought affectionately. Yeah, but another good one. The next days flew by. Her department was struggling. She knew it. But the next week was looking to be a real nightmare. Mrs Shah, the supervisor, at a wit's end. The caseloads were rising. It was a familiar story nowadays. Just too many clients and not enough staff. Pam sipped a coffee and looked at her untidy desk, papers piling up in her trays. Her email pinged and she glanced up. Oh dear, she thought. From Templeton Road Surgery. Rose Johnson. She'd passed the day before. She could take her off the list. Oh, she sighed. It had, well, it had been on the cards. But the old man, Mr. Johnson, his smiling face now filling her mind. She thought for a second and then picked her bag up and waved to Cathy. Back in an hour, she mouthed. She'd pop in, she thought. It wasn't far. She could drop off some stuff at the surgery too on her way past and finally she saw the building and pulled in and parked. The lifts were out of order, as usual, and she trudged up the concrete stairs. Finally, when she got to the right floor, she was a little out of breath, because the old man's flat was on the third landing, and she turned off the stairs, a long row of doors running along the landing, many shuttered and barred. What a place to live, she thought. What a place for an old couple. It was number 37. She didn't need her note, she'd remembered. But outside, a young policewoman was standing outside the front door. It looked like it had been forced open. Oh, that wasn't a good sign. Pam drew level, holding up her nurse ID, and the WPC smiled and waved her inside. In you go, love. She stepped into the tiny, crowded living room. and There were two paramedics and a second WPC, and then her heart sank. Mr Johnson. There he sat, in his chair, smart, well turned out, his eyes tightly shut, pale, clearly passed. The blonde paramedic looked up. Oh, sorry nurse, the gentleman passed about, she looked at her chart, an hour ago, We had a call from a neighbour, heard him crying apparently, very much out of character, she said. And the WPC shook her head. Poor old thing. This is just how we found him. We're waiting for the on-call doctor. And then she shrugged and looked at the pictures on the mantelpiece. Looks like a nice couple, eh? Still, they had a good innings, hmm? Pam nodded. She'd seen it before, but still, sadness flooded through her. She knew it was silly. It happened all the time. A regular occurrence in her job, in fact. One partner, normally passing, to be quickly followed by the other. They'd even done studies on it. She looked at Mr Johnson and knelt down. Do you mind? she said. And the two paramedics moved back. <laughs> Poor old love, she thought. Kind and brave, loving. Here's Rosa been a lucky woman. And I bet she knew it, she thought. Behind her, the WPC moved and leaned in, her face calm. Hmm, it's an unusual tattoo, isn't it? And Pam followed the outstretched finger. Mr Johnson's arm, the right arm, the one she'd showed him, the rose. But it was different. The bright petals of the red rose had fallen down. And now there was just an empty stem. And below it, The little heart was in two pieces and she felt her throat tighten. How? she thought. And then she felt tears come as she looked again just to be sure. For now, there were two little angels, not one. And they were both smiling and they were holding hands. Well, that's it for today and I hope you... I hope you enjoyed that one. They call that a three-tissue story, I think. So thanks for listening. Do reach out to us on social media. Say hi. Tell us how you think we're doing. But remember The Story Hive. We have our main platform, thestoryhive.co.uk. And we really enjoy this, and we hope you do too. So I'm going to leave you today with my normal little message, and it's a hope the world gives you a break today. Bye now.